Welcome everybody to Between the Lines, the podcast from Jewish Quest. My name is Simon Eder and each week I'm joined by a special guest to help us deconstruct that week's parasha, exploring new insights and meaning in the Torah. And we are joined today by Rabbi Jan Abach, who is the founding director of the Block Kolka Center for Spiritual Arts. She brings a passion for prayer to the JTS community through her work as director of the Block Kolka Center for Spiritual Arts. And she's developed and oversees programs and discussions, as well as prayer services on Shabbat and festivals for the JTS community. She's also a teacher on the meaning of liturgy and runs courses or a particular course entitled The Art of Leading Prayer. And in addition to her role at JTS, she also serves as the founding rabbi of the Conservative Synagogue of the Hamptons in Bridgehampton. And she has played a key role in the acclaimed Lev Shalem prayer book series as associate editor. It is wonderful to have you with us today, and we look forward to exploring Parashat Bo together. It's a pleasure to be here and a privilege. Thanks for inviting me. Wonderful. Maybe let's dive into that continued dance that we have of Pharaoh changing his mind yet again. For the first time, though, perhaps during the seventh plague, it seems that even he seemingly admits his mistakes. Pharaoh summoned Moses and Aaron this time saying, I have sinned. And he says to them, the Lord is in the right and I and my people are in the wrong. And yet, once again, as soon as the plague is over, he changes his mind. What do you make of that continued dark? One possibility, obviously, is that when we're under duress, we say what we need to say. And that Pharaoh, in a moment of pressure, agreed to let the people go, but he never intended to actually fulfill it, and he never meant it. But I think a deeper way to read it is that learning is hard, and changing belief systems is really hard. And I think that we're meant to both see Pharaoh as the adversary, but also to, in some ways, identify with him. I think we're meant to read the story as though at different times we're everyone in it. And, and the truth is that this changing of the mind is true of the Israelites too, right? They want to get out, they get out, and almost immediately they want to go back. And, and I think that the narrative is teaching us something very profound about the human condition, which is that Learning, I think, really is a process of learning and forgetting and remembering and forgetting and re-remembering and relearning and forgetting and, and moving forward and then sliding back. And viewed that way, he's a model for the, the dark side of the way that we grow and learn, that it's not a linear process at all. And we really have to work hard to hold whatever new learning we're trying to to incorporate into our being. It's really fascinating that you 
draw that parallel with the Israelites and to to see that continuity between both the Israelites and Pharaoh and kind of bridge that divide. I think that's one of the most important lessons that we get from the study of Torah generally, and not just this particular narrative, that I think the Torah is continually pushing us out of overly simplistic binaries and clear black and whites and pushing us to see nuance and continua instead of brightly divided opposites. And there's there's Pharaoh in us and there's some good in Pharaoh. And I think a fair reading of the narrative will push us in that direction. What's the what's the good that you want to draw out of Pharaoh that we can learn from and and in ingest today? The positive side of Pharaoh is that he has the courage of his convictions and he's willing to stand for something. The dark side of that is the stubbornness that he can't learn and he can't take in new information. But in the positive sense, he actually has a belief system that he stands by. It's not an accurate or a positive belief system, but he does have the courage of his convictions. And there is a kind of greatness to him. I think it's one of the reasons why he's, why God chooses him. One of my favorite readings of the hardening of Pharaoh's heart is that it's actually, that God was actually making him strong enough that he would be able to resist And so if he yielded, it would be a free choice, that there's no point in just having someone who's cowardly and weak and at the first moment of seeming difficulty or loss caves. What does that prove? Pharaoh has a real strength in him. And I think he's a lesson in the way in which our greatest strengths can often be our greatest weaknesses, or perhaps are always our greatest weaknesses. As well. no, it's, it's a great reading. And, and perhaps with that strength, that's the ferment in which the Israelites are able to form. That's right. We need a strong adversary, not a weak one. We wanted to, I know, discuss also the importance of remembering that you draw from this week, Cedra, and the exodus from Egypt is the first of six commands in the Torah that we find to remember. What does it mean to remember? It's the first of actually many. I think it, there, what you're referring to is there's a liturgical tradition of the Sheish Zechirot, the six remembrances which are drawn from six times when the Torah specifically says, Zachor, remember something or some version of that. But actually memory is everywhere and commands to remember. There are many of them. Um, In this context, in the context of these six remembrances and the others, similar ones, I think remember is used here in the sense of not something on your mental grocery list that you forgot to buy, right? Like you remember as opposed to forgetting in that way, but rather intentionally calling to mind and focusing one's attention on something. And on an even deeper level, perhaps we might say claiming something as an operative principle in one's consciousness and one's life. In Genesis, mostly it's God who remembers, 
right? With the exception of the Joseph story in which Joseph is forgotten and then he's remembered, which really is about that. Do I remember? Do I not? Mostly it's God who remembers. God remembers the covenant with Noah. And when I look at the rainbow, I will remember and God with Abraham. And obviously God doesn't forget in the way a human being forgets. And so the issue of remembrance there is different, I think, than, than we might, than when we think about remembrance as the opposite of forgetting. Maybe the best analogy would be like why we have a special Yisker service, right? It's not like we forget our loved ones when we're not in shul praying Yisker. It's that we're setting aside time to call to mind certain memories and think about the significance of these people in our lives. It's about being present to memory. And I would say there are often, there are things that we know that when the Sheish Zecherot, these six remembrances, the story of the Exodus from Egypt are in this category, things that we know that we're not going to forget in the sense that we wouldn't one day wake up and say, wait, what was that thing about Egypt again? What was that about? We remember, but we forget in the sense that the lessons cease either temporarily or permanently to be operational for us, that they're not functional memories, where they're not working to, the memory is not affecting our character and who we are and how we behave. So I guess... In the broadest sense, I would say remembering here is about consciously shaping our consciousness, especially in this practice of morning liturgy. What do I want? What do I want to think about in this moment today and do that consciously? I wonder, just dwelling on your early point that it's really God who remembers in Genesis, and you're saying that that the that imperative is then transferred to to the children of Israel as the imperative to remember do you see that the continuity of those calls to remember that then pepper much of the rest of the torah do you see continuity in them or does that evolve as well i do see continuity and and I think the issue of remembrance is really core to the mission of the Torah and the Jewish people. I noticed actually that on your website, your, your tagline is free thinking is priceless and on the Jewish Quest website. And so there's a question really, is free thinking possible and how do we attain it? Because we don't approach thought process as blank slates with the ability to take in sensory input or ideas in a completely objective, neutral way, and we're free to think anything we want. Our thinking is shaped by our memories, by our prior experience, whether whether they're good memories or traumatic memories, whether we're conscious of them or we're not. And the more conscious of them that we are, the freer our thinking is. And so if we are going to be free, moral, ethical beings in relationship with God, then we need to really take seriously the imperative to remember in and to shape our memories in conscious, intentional ways so that we don't just act out 
without being aware of it, or we don't reify what we already know in an endless feedback loop, which obviously in our society right now is a huge problem, right? That people take in information. We know this from the work of Daniel Kahneman and others on right, thinking fast and slow and how we take in information that it's hard to unremember things we've learned or seen. And that's work. It's spiritual work. You, you remind me actually of a line from the late Rabbi Sachs when he says that memory is the greatest guardian of freedom. Yes. I wonder how you respond to that. I think that's absolutely right in the sense that if we don't remember our core values, if we don't remember the, the things that we hold most dear, if we don't remember our ethics, if we don't remember history, there's a classic line, those who don't learn from history are doomed to repeat it. At the same time, I think also memory can keep us stuck. If we don't, if we aren't aware of, we don't have meta-awareness of the memories that we hold and interrogate our memory, then we simply repeat what we've always done and what we've always believed and learning becomes very difficult. In some ways, that's the model of Pharaoh, right? He's unable to question what he already knows. He remembers too much, in a sense. And he's unable to forget what he thinks he knows in order to learn something new. And it's not exactly a process of remembering and forgetting, but it's in, inter, intimately intertwined. Learning is intimately intertwined with remembering and forgetting. And if we only remember and we never forget, we can easily stay stuck and enslaved to old patterns and old experiences and simply repeating what was. I wonder if you might share, maybe even personally, just how memory or the command to remember has changed for you. Obviously, there's, there's the daily remembrance of this. There's Seder, there's Torah. So much of the Siddur is really an injunction to to remember and i just wonder how that that injunction to remember evolves and changes and has changed for you yeah i i was very i was very struck and very moved when i encountered the notion of being our consciousness that if we call to mind certain things we will be predisposed to see new data in light of what we've remembered. That moves me a lot. And it's very empowering in terms of how I go about my day. And so if I take time in the morning in my prayer practice to remember not only the things that I'm committed to, but things that keep me hopeful. If you think about what the memory of the exodus from Egypt is, there are the obvious things that we talk about all the time, and the Torah emphasizes you are a stranger in a strange land, and therefore you know the soul of the stranger, and you have to treat strangers in a certain way. Those are obvious lessons, but there are so many others. And on any given morning, encountering the story of the Exodus, whether it's in the liturgy or in the in this practice of the six remembrances and the command to remember, or it's about or in different aspects of the story may manifest depending on what I need. There are, there's an aspect of that story about all the individuals who did small acts of courage, 
that paved the way for a grand redemption. The midwives, Pharaoh's daughter, the courage of Yocheved and Levi to have children in a time of oppression. That's one model where in a moment, in a morning where I might feel that there isn't much I can do today, remembering that might give me hope and courage and confidence that I can do something. Or on the flip side, whether it's thinking about Pharaoh's intransigence and inability to learn something new, I might one morning think about that and think, okay, how can I avoid that trap today and open myself to something that might be hard to hear? Most powerfully, I think, is the notion of the exodus from Egypt as an overwhelming paradigm shift of a complete systemic upheaval. And in those times when I wake up and think the world is so broken and this is such an intractable system and it seems inevitable and it seems that there will never be any different. No, the whole point of that story is don't assume that because the system is in place, it will remain so. Keep working toward the dream. So I think that it's hard to it's hard to identify the ways in which it that practice has made specific changes in my life and my consciousness because they accrete slowly. But looking back over the course of a lifetime, one can see, wow, I'm really a different person. And I attribute some of that to to that practice of being conscious to remember certain things. Thank you for for speaking personally, Matt. I know you've referred that current cognitive research reveals that human memory is fluid and continually evolving, perhaps in the way that you've just been speaking to. And therefore, our memories not only shape our current experience, they're also shaped by our current experience in this kind of continuous feedback loop. How do you see that the Torah and Jewish tradition has intuited this? For one thing, I think Jewish tradition and the Torah have always understood that there's a difference between memory and history. I don't think the Torah and Jewish practice as it has evolved has the fantasy that human memory is accurate history. And that's a very, I think that's been borne out by the contemporary science, but it's also a really important thing to remember in terms of our own humility and what we think. And in some ways, I think the Torah is right in understanding that the more important piece is actually memory. Kahneman, for example, in his book documents that what we take away from an experience is so much more dependent on what we remember and how we process it than what happened in the moment. And the Torah actually is exactly in line with that in this parasha because the specific Zahor command appears in Exodus 13, which is just after we actually come out of Egypt. But it's very clear from the structure of chapter 12 that the instruction to mark the occasion through ongoing ritual, which is the Pesach festival, and, and all of that observance happens before we're actually brought out from Egypt. Right? We have in 1214, this day shall be for you for memory. 
Right. So it, it's like the actual enslavement and the exodus happens explicitly for the purpose of creating a memory of it. We're told how we are going to remember it and what we should remember about it and the lessons that we should take from it before it even happens. That's really that it's such a postmodern thought. And it's so in line with the contemporary research about the way that memory works. This was an experience that we were given so that we would consciously shape our consciousness with it. And the reality is in every generation, as we sit at the Pesach table and we tell the story or we think about it on Shabbat, which is also in part a remembrance of the exodus of Egypt. And then every morning as we write the blessing after the Shema, every generation as we engage in that process, we uncover and develop more of the meaning of that story. Each individual does it throughout a lifetime. As we get older and more sophisticated, we learn more lessons about what that we can pull out from that story. And I believe that as a people over time, that learning and growth expands upon itself and our understanding as a people of the significance of the story changes. And so the story itself changes and we remember it differently. And we remember it in light of the commentaries we've learned. We remember it in light of our own experience and how it helped us or how it how our life reflected it or it seemed to reflect our lives. So in that respect, certainly, I think the Torah anticipated the, the contemporary on this. And I would say that it really, the way that it developed into this practice of daily remembrances, and it's one of the functions of prayer, is to prime our consciousness for gratitude every day, to prime our conscious to remember that we're something, we're part of something bigger than ourselves every day. The goal being, of course, that we'll remember that those when we encounter another human being in the world and will behave differently. But I think that process of daily prayer and daily remembering is a kind of hyperlink to this rich network of teachings and lessons. Each of the six remembrances has a whole body of learning associated with it. And as I mentioned earlier, we draw what we need that day. In some in some versions of this liturgical six remembrances, the manna in the wilderness is included. And that one is really evocative in a capitalist society. Every morning before you go off to work, you're supposed to remember that sufficiency is provided that you don't overreach. And if you take too much, it will rot on you. That's a remarkable, it, it just... That's a, it's the Torah of Dayenu, of enough and not too much. What a powerful thing to remember every day in a capitalist society that continue, where the message is always more and accumulate, accumulate. Every day to start the day, remember, we have an experience of trusting there will be enough. I have enough to give. And it's not just money. There's enough kavod, there's enough honor and dignity to go around. I don't have to compete for who counts. There's enough, right? There's enough love in the world. I don't have to be competitive for that. There's enough. What that's it's very powerful. And it really is about what the contemporary science shows about the importance of priming our memory, that we will see through the lens of what we've already called to mind.
And so maybe it will help us be less competitive in our day, more cooperative. Amen to that. Rabbi Erbach, thank you so much for exploring today with us and for sharing. And remembering will be different again, having journeyed through with you today. So plenty, plenty to add, plenty to dwell on in what you've shared. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. If you've enjoyed this podcast, then please do remember to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Do, of course, check out further content that we have for you at jewishquest.org. And we very much look forward to meeting again next week. Mm-hmm.